at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Yeah, look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, go ahead and bring me up just a little bit more. There we go. Hey, I'm so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is, is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator, or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip your hand up and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. If you're watching on the online campus, there's a Bible tab there for you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Three of you believe that. Every, t- every, time you meet, every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with who? Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Hey, uh, turn in your Bible to the book of John. We've been in this series for the past several weeks, and we'll continue on for the next 27 years in this series. And, uh, and so turn to the book of John, and if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the left and turn right, and you'll find it much faster. Or you can start two-thirds of the way through. You'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and... John. And so we're going to be in John chapter number one, uh, or chapter number three, verse one. Sorry about that. Chapter number three, verse one. And we're going to read a, a, a few, quite a few verses today. We're going to actually pass through one of the most famous verses, maybe one that you know by heart, know by memory, one of the most quoted and famous lines in human history. And then we're going to look at some of the context around that and particularly look what um, Jesus is saying to us through this passage. Uh, and then I'll kind of give some implications for um, what this passage brings to us, how, how we think about that practically. And so let's look at um, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. You can say amen when you're there. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man to came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Let me pause just for a moment and say the Pharisees was a religious group. They were kind of the, the keepers of the rules, and they made sure everybody else was following the rules. And later we'll find that the apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, the great persecutor of Christians, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And one of the reasons why he persecuted Jesus' followers is because they were not keeping the rules. And so he persecuted them. And now we read the Gospel of John, which says that Nicodemus came, was a part of the Pharisee group. The, uh, he was part of, of this particular organization, if you will, and he comes to Jesus by night because he's breaking ranks, and then look what he says, you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things except God is with him. This is a profound, just in the first couple verses of this, it's profound to slow down and go, hey, here's the implications of what John's saying. Pharisee and a Pharisee believes Jesus came from God. Are you with me? Say amen if you are. 
Jesus, uh, Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again. Someone say born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You're going to underline those two verses. We're going to deal with those two verses in just a moment and, uh, and talk about what they actually mean and why they're in the place that they are in, God's, in John's gospel. And then he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him and said, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here's the most famous passage that you would know. How about you read it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's not stop there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that we would hear, understand, and receive what you have for us. Let the wind of the Spirit blow on us, making us truly alive. Help rekindle, fan into flame, the gift of God that is your Spirit in our lives, that we would be led, we would be stirred, all for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. See, I, I want to talk about uh, why John writes this particular, um, these lines, and why he puts them where 
they are, and then how we navigate. See, the reality is, is that everyone's talking about Jesus, and many people have opinions about Jesus, or they preach about Jesus, and, and, and yet oftentimes, maybe we miss the what we call the good news about Jesus. See, you can tell Jesus stories, but not really get the point of what the Jesus story was all about. There's actually a story in the end of Luke where they called them two fools on a road to Emmaus because they were with Jesus telling Jesus stories to Jesus and missed that they were with Jesus. Somebody say, oh no to that, right? Like, and we don't want to be people who tell Jesus stories, maybe even to Jesus people or to Jesus and miss the point of the good news about Jesus. Are you with me? Somebody say amen. See, this, this word gospel means good news. The good news about Jesus. And so oftentimes people can preach from Scripture and preach Jesus and yet miss the point of Jesus. And one of those ways it happens is with this famous Bible verse that Tim Tebow wrote. Uh, that joke goes better in the South. Uh, you know, the, the, the verse that maybe Tim Tebow made famous, for those of you who don't know, I didn't explain this in the first, but Tim Tebow, when he played for the Florida Gators, uh, used to write John 3.16 on the eye black underneath his eyes. And at that particular time in the national football game, John 3.16 was the most searched Bible verse of all time now, and it's never even been close. And, and you quoted that, you know that, you've committed it to memory, and, and you've said uh, with me, and you could say it again, we would say this verse to, together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And oftentimes we quote that, we love that, and if that's all we knew about it, we would walk away and say, God loves me, and he gives me gifts. Amen. Or, oh no, right? Maybe if all I think is if I go home with just that, and maybe that's, that's powerful, but just like any other verse in the Bible, we talk about it. You can miss the point of the book if you only take one verse and I single it out and I say, I'm going to live by this, I'm going to quote this, I'm going to put it up on my refrigerator magnet. It's going to be the most quoted verse in human history, yet there's some things that Jesus says around that that is absolutely important, wouldn't you say? How many of you have uh, the Bibles that G the words of Jesus are in red? How many of you got, whoo, man, Bible babies, right? Feltboard kids, right? My, my Bible doesn't even have the words in red. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just listen to any recent country song. They'll tell you about the words in red and why they're important. Because the words in red are the words of... Jesus. But see, we as believers have to, have to be reminded that all of this book is the word of Jesus. Oh, half of you. <laughs> These are the words of Jesus. Maybe not the, the actual narrative words that Jesus spoke, but inspired through his 
his apostles, through people who knew him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it helps us actually navigate the rest of the Bible. See, what can happen is just what can happen in any story that you read or any movie that you watch. You can get caught up in what is the true meaning of that particular story. Are you ever watch the same movie, same down, and walk away with two different perspectives of that movie or that story? Amen. Well, here's, here's the good thing about what the Bible does for us is the Bible is not written by one person. It's written by hundreds of different people. It's actually 66 different books canonized together, or in other words, grouped together, all telling one continuous story about the person of Jesus. And so why that's important is there's some things in the Bible that some people have said, see, there's discrepancies or, or there's kind of some confusion, particularly around who got to the tomb first. Was it the ladies? Was it the guys? Who and We know it was the ladies, right? And, and, and you know, I know this because if you're like, listen, uh, husbands, wives, you ever sit down over dinner and, and he goes to tell a story and you're like, hold on a second, that's not how it really happened, right? Come on, right? Like that, that's not how. Now, does it make it any less true, right? It was true for him and how, he, he, how it happened for him. But if you were to tell a story with your siblings, you would say, who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? Who got there first? And if you ever get around a family reunion or Thanksgiving or Christmas, you start telling stories. And there's a lot of discrepancies about how that story gets told. But the more people who tell the story the more onto the actual truth you will be. See, that's how the Bible is put together. There's all of these different people telling this story, this same story. And the details, although differ, the point and where it points to, it, it, it all is congruent with one another. So the great thing about this religious book, if you will, is it's not written by one person. If you ever come across a religious book, a foundational passage, a religion that revolves around one particular book, and it's only written or signed off by one person, run away. Amen? <clears throat> because here's the beautiful thing, is all of this is written not by the leader, right? Because here's the beautiful thing about Christianity, is the Bible is a story about everybody else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. And that's good news for you and me, friend. Amen? That's good news. Amen? Right? And so the reality of this book is everyone is an under-shepherd, or they're working for the leader. They're pointing to the leader. They're not pointing at themselves. They're actually being honest about their flaws, shortcomings. This is the most honest religious book in the history of the world because it does not just tell the, the, the great virtues of our heroes of the faith. It actually talks about their demise and their shortcomings. And that's the beautiful thing about this particular book. And yet it is inspired and helps us navigate the story stories that we read, particularly the gospel stories, which are the narrative stories, because we can read these stories about Jesus and we can come to whatever particular conclusion that we might like or, or, or just be drawn to, just like any movie, any story. Oftentimes you put yourself as the hero of the story. You're never the villain, right? And yet you walk away with your own 
conclusion. And oftentimes you can do that in church. You can hear uh, in the gathering of the church, if you will, you can hear a sermon, you can hear a story, and you'll poke and go, you need to hear this one, buddy. Right? Like, hey, oh no. Right? Like, or I know someone who really, I'm going to, hey, pastor, can I get that link? Somebody needs to hear this. Right? Like, this part wasn't for me. Right? And, and, and what can happen is we come to our own conclusions. And, and yet, John 3.16 is written in such a way that we can hear, believe, and receive. But there's more to it that he says in this long discourse that he gives to this teacher in the middle of the night who, and, and asks this particular question. And so what helps us navigate these things are the rest of the Bible. See, Bible interprets Bible. The epistles are written. People here write stories. The apostle Paul will write a story and he will actually tell his shortcomings. He'll say, listen, I was a Pharisee above all other Pharisees and I was, I was zealous for my father's tradition so much so that I thought Jesus people were hijacking my daddy's business and I'm going to take them out because they're not going to tarnish our way of life. And Paul's actually honest about it. Paul would go on to write 16 books of the Bible. Uh, could you imagine getting a letter from the guy that you know and heard about had persecuted the church at one point? You think this is a bait and switch kind of thing. Man, he's a Trojan horse coming in in the night to take us all out. But actually, Paul would point to his life transformation, or in other words, this idea that he was born again to to give credence or credibility to actually who Jesus was and I think it's interesting that Paul would use that language consider himself a Pharisee of Pharisee and here we have this story John knows Paul's story and then John writes in the detail a Pharisee would come in the night and ask him these go, but why does he come in the night? Many might uh, suggest that, that he's afraid of the political party that is the Pharisee party. And so he comes at night. Others would suggest there's too many crowds. The crowds are too big. He can't have an honest conversation. That's why small groups and not so small groups are really important. Amen. Uh, and, and, and so the crowd is not the time in which you're going to get a lot of plugs for that today, okay? And, and, and so shameless plugs. And, 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 and so the idea that, that there were too many people at these large gatherings, but there's rumors about what Jesus has done. And, and John is a brilliant storyteller, and so he tells this story, but we got to ask the question, why does he tell it in this particular order? And John rearranges the order quite differently, or his perspective of the order is quite different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he starts in chapter 1, if you remember, we get to the crazy cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, and he's different than the, the John who's writing the book, and that's confusing, especially what it was like for me growing up when my grandmother named all her four sons John, so I got a few uncle, and that, that's not a joke, and, uh, and so uh, this is my other brother, Daryl, I mean, uh, this, is my other, this is my other brother, uh, uh, this is my other brother, John, and so we're talking about a different John, and here's what John says, he, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at it's here. It's now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've been talking about it. Then after the baptism of Jesus, we get to every mom's favorite miracle. He turns water into 
Wine. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Like, he turns water into wine. But why does he go from this idea of turning water into wine, this wedding, this marriage, and then go into this scene where he tells this discourse between him and Nicodemus? Why does he pair these two up? And so you get to chapter 3 when he meets in the night, and all of a sudden you begin to see the symmetry. Jesus says this, he says, you have to be born again. And see, Nicodemus has already heard the rumors. He's already heard the rumors that Jesus turned water into wine. And let me tell you, that is something. That's not nothing, friend. What it says is right in the middle of this creation, right in the middle of what already is, God has the ability to create something new. See, God is creator. Amen? How many, how many of you know somebody who's really creative? Right? You sit beside. Right? And I know some of you, the real creatives were just waiting for their friends to point them out. And when their friends didn't point them out, all right, how about this? How many of you are really creative? Just come out. Whoa. There you are. There's less of those. But they're, they're can, can, I just, can I just burst your bubble for a second? You create nothing. <laughs> Amen. So the millennials just got up. Right? No. <laughs> I am creative, and I create all the time, right? But here's the reality. You create nothing. You work with what already is. You're just working with raw materials, baby. You're just rearranging what's already there. You're creating nothing. If I could create something, I'd create some hair and put it on my head so I can wear this hat all the time in the sun. Come on, bro. Yeah, amen. Uh, right? If I could make something grow, if I could create something, I would. You do not create anything. There is what is, and God has given you the task, like children going to work with their dad. You don't really do anything anyways. It's a rubber hammer, bro, right? Like, you're just there rearranging and being creative because you're just trying to somewhat reflect. And if there's any bit of creative nature about you, it comes from the God who is creator. And so the very need to create something beautiful, to rearrange, to have a room in your house, you go, that's my room, or, or to paint, or, or, or to create a, a sonnet or a symphony. All of these great artists of the world are only acting in the nature that's placed uh, in them by God. That's different than all of the other created order. Beasts of the fields, animals do not create works of art art and yet it separates us and shows us the image of God in us that we would take things that aren't useful for anything except for attention and to make something more beautiful think about how that is and oftentimes now the reversal of that Man, we've created cultures where the creative among us, don't judge me, I tricked you into raising your hand, so there is no judgment, right? There becomes arrogance in those who feel as though they've created something beautiful, and yet, and yet allowing that to roll past the creative act and into praise of the 
creator, what should happen for creative, creative types is an awestruck wonder of the creator God who makes things that you could never dream up on your own. Jesus even says this kind of thing. He says, man, I'm telling you earthly things, Nicodemus, and you don't understand them. Because I'm not, I'm not speaking to you from the volume of my imaginations. I'm speaking from the place from which I came. See, every artist and every preacher, every storyteller only tells stories and, and preaches from the volume of their imagination. If I was to tell you what heaven is like, it only comes from my imagination. When Jesus talks about heaven, he's talking about the place in which he came from. It's vastly different. And he says, man, we're on, we're on different levels. We're on different perspectives. I want to I tell you, but here's what Nicodemus heard, is that God, Jesus, is not merely creative. He's actually a creator. He turned water into wine. And then, then we get to this, this passage where he says, listen, if you're going to do what John the Baptist said, see John the Baptist's words are saying the, inner, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent or you'll miss it. Or in other words, change the way you think. The word repentance comes from the Greek word uh, metanoia, which means to change the way you think so that you do something different. The rumors of that. I don't want to miss the kingdom of God. Listen at Nicodemus who, who will later uh, fight with uh, Joseph of Arimathea for the body of Jesus. This conversation changes him so much so that he becomes a part of the legacy of Jesus. And yet at first glance, we think he's afraid. He comes in the night. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his back row Christianity. It's no, no, I'd be there with you. right? And yet he obliges him. And then he says, you're a teacher. He says, how do I enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says this profound thing. He says, you must be born again. And he quickly goes, are you crazy? I mean, how can, how can something be made from what already is? How could something be made from what already is? How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus laughs and he goes, you didn't hear about the wedding? You didn't hear about how I turned water into wine? You didn't hear about how I created something out of something that already is? See, the symmetry he begins to, to paint here. And then he says this, What is born of water is water. What is born of the flesh is flesh. But what is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. See, sometimes people use this particular passage to talk about water baptism as a, uh, as a key or a prerequisite for salvation. The Bible doesn't hold that kind of view. And how I know that is the other parts of the scriptures as we talk, interpret. What he says here is when he says you must be born of water, what happens when a, a lady goes into labor? What breaks? Her water breaks. He says, you have to have a natural verse, meaning you have to have a beginning, but you merely exist. And so you have to be born also of the Spirit. Notice what happens in the miracle that precedes this is he turns water into wine. He actually creates something from what already is. Are you with me? 
He creates something right here in the middle of this. You go, how is that possible? And he laughs at him. He, he, he says, listen, what, what, do you, what do you mean? You didn't hear the story? I've not already given you an actual illustration. How could I tell you of heavenly things if, I, if you, you don't understand earthly things? This idea of being born again. And then he uses this. And I remember sharing this with the, the students on Thursday night and talking about this particular passage. And, and, and I, I said, how many of you believe in the wind? Well, you believed in the wind this week, didn't you, right? Right? He said, man, right? Uh, it's just worry. God's just giving us a plethora of sermon illustrations, right? Uh, it's like Sam's going to need this, right? Right? Like you believe, but you can't see it, yet you believe in it, and you don't know where it comes from. He says, some of you are like, I know exactly where it comes from, Lompoc, right? <laughs> exactly where it comes from, right? <laughs> Tell me, right? I know where it's, I know where it comes from, all right? Three o'clock every day, right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can't see the one. And he, said, and he gives us his illustration. He says, you can't see. I, I remember seeing these teenagers' eyes when I said, listen, you believe in the wind, right? And you can't see it. Quickly, like, yeah, wow. See, you may not be able to see this new life that God is creating right here from what already is and what you thought he couldn't make beautiful and what you thought he couldn't bring resurrection through what was dead. See, Paul's going to write in Ephesians. Maybe he had a conversation with Nicodemus later on. Maybe he's going to write in Ephesians. He's going to say, you were once dead in your trespasses and sin. This is Ephesians 2. You were dead in which you walked. Walking dead. I've heard that somewhere, right? All right see, the, the, see, Hollywood didn't come up with the ideas of zombies. <laughs> Apparently the Bible did. That we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people doing dead things. And then he says, but because of God's mercy and greatness to show you who he was, he turned water into wine. He took something that was flesh and made spiritual. He, he, he birthed something new from what already is. And you say, I can't see it. You say, well, I can't see it. Well, can you see the wind? See, this, see the problem is, is, is some of us have lost our imagination. That's why Jesus says, listen, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you think like a little child. Bible babies, thank you. Right? Unless you have... How many, how many of you would say this, that your imagination, now that you're older has gotten bigger or smaller three of you are honest this is a this is a dialogue not just a monologue uh but i give you your lines right uh so <laughs> it's like I, I now that you mentioned i got some things to say right uh, would your imagination gotten bigger or smaller smaller See, oftentimes what we think about who God is over time, life and sediment and culture, all of a sudden begin to shrink our view of who God is. And yet, this, this discourse that, that Jesus begins to say to Nicodemus, so he begins to say, listen, there's life that 
that death can't stop. And you're living in a world that is full of death, but there is resurrection life. There is a doorway. There is something birthed right here and right now, right in the middle of what already is something spiritual, a new life. And you have to believe that. And he says, for this is a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, would not die, but have everlasting life. Meaning that death is no longer final. It is, it is, it is merely a doorway moving from life to life. Now all of a sudden, death is not something to be feared, but something to be embraced as we transition from life to life. And, and only people who believe that there's something beyond this and there's life that can happen here that's, that spans forever could actually see that moment differently. Because here's the reality. We will all, 100% of the time, die. Every single human being has an expiration date. But here's the lie. What happens is, is we think those who are older are closer to that date. And those who are younger are further from that date. But see, life tells us that every man and woman is appointed a time to live and a time to die. And oftentimes that's what's so jarring for us when people who are on the younger scale have this meeting early. We've, we begin to ask questions. We begin to think about life and death differently. But see, even those who are up in age and, and they feel as though that meeting, that time, will they'll come face to face with eternity. His name is Jesus. When they come to the one who is eternal, who holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave, man, they get closer to that day. Even those who have been following Jesus, the enemy will tempt us, begin to look back on our lives and ask this question, was I good enough? Some of us ask that question on a weekly basis. How about you? I see, here's why it's good news that the Bible is a story about everybody else getting it wrong one person getting it right because what you'll do is you'll look back on your life and you'll you'll say did I you look back up on your on your week sometimes and you go does the scales match up did I do enough in my life do I have enough and those are people who have met Jesus further along if they don't fully understand the good news of the gospel man they may be conflicted when they come closer to this meeting why? Because they think that it's their good works and their good deeds that will somehow allow them to open the door, to have access. You know, I, I remember over the years, I, I would visit this lady in our church, and, and uh, she was up in her 90s uh, before she passed. And this was a couple years ago, but over the course of four years, on many different occasions, every few months, I would go over to her house, and we'd have coffee, and, and uh, we, would, we would talk, and she would tell stories, and I would try to communicate the scriptures. But this was always the, always the problem, and, and, and the, the space between us was that for most of her life, she has been deaf, legally deaf. And, and then as she got older, she became legally blind. 
And so you can imagine to sit with someone, and there's a lady from our church who would go with us, and she knew the lady personally, and we, we would have these conversations. But you can imagine trying to communicate such deep truths to someone who can barely hear me and can barely see. So she would have this, this whiteboard, and, and, and we would... We would, uh, we would try to draw on the whiteboard and, and, and try to like, come up with ways on how I c- could communicate. And I'd get nervous because I barely spell. I don't even know how to write. And uh, it's the only skill I got, right? And, uh, and, and so I, like, I, would, I would draw something out or write a letter, and I'd hand it to her, and she'd look at me like, no, honey, try again. <laughs> like, 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 that's not good enough. And, and I remember as she got closer to this date, she began to wrestle with, was she good enough? Had she done enough? And she would tell stories like many of us do. Sometimes we're the hero in the story, and then someone else would paint us as the bad guy in the story. And as we look back on our lives, we go, man, did I do enough to balance the scales? Do I have life, this new life in Jesus? I remember sitting with her and trying to help her understand. See, Like I said earlier, the epistles help us interpret these stories. And John knows that. John actually wrote other books. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the Big John. Then he wrote the Little Johns, 1, 2, and 3. Then he wrote the book of Revelation, which we don't want to talk about except this year, right? You know. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, uh, just remember it's a story about Jesus. You're welcome. See, he writes this this gospel of John, and he writes this, I've written these stories that you may believe. That's what's on the bumper video before I start. Many other things could have been written, but the stories in this book are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. And then, 1 John is written because John is now an old pastor. He's got people in his congregation that maybe even knew Jesus personally. But now they're seeing their friends die. They're seeing them pass on before they see Jesus come back. And people are beginning to ask questions. Do we really have this life? Is Jesus really king? And is there something new right in the middle of what already is? And so he writes 1 John. He writes 1 John and he writes this. He says, I write this so that you may have assurance of faith. He's saying, I wrote this so you could believe. And then at the end of your life, when you look back, you will still be tempted to think this is a story about you. You, you'll still think this is based on your good works and your good deeds and the enemy will tempt you to look back and trust yourself and there is no hope in what you do. Somebody say amen to that. There is only hope in what he has done. So he writes this. He goes, here's how you can know that you know that you know that you walk in the light, you walk in truth and you have life. He says you can have a litmus test And he says this, you'll constantly go back and forth. You'll say, if those, 1 John uh, reads like this, very much like this passage where he says, those who, who are born again, they'll leave the dark and they'll walk in the light. The opening chapter of 1 John says this, those who have fellowship with Jesus don't live in the dark and they walk in the light. But then he says this, but if you do sin, if you do stumble, 
you have an advocate with the Father who's faithful and just to forgive you. In other words, he says, you're going to walk in the light and oftentimes you're going to trip, stumble in the dark. But here's the difference. People who get up and don't pitch their tent in the dark and they begin to walk in the light. Those are the people who have life. Paul says it this way. He says, the thing that I want to do, that's not what I do. The, the, the thing that I hate, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. I remember sitting with Rachel as she began to contemplate her salvation at 90 years old, a faithful saint more than 60 plus years, and yet still asking the question, have I done enough? Because I know me, I, I, did, I, didn't, I, I didn't always live up to the standard. How about you? And all of a sudden guilt, but here's what the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away, and behold, all things are new. Here's the problem with a little bit of that translation. It's not quite accurate. Because a better, a better version of that passage, and this is how I came to this conclusion, I have a sermon prep meeting every Tuesday where iron sharpens iron as one sharpens another and where Mark tells Sam how it really is. He says a better rendering of that would be that the old has been rendered powerless. And behold, all things are new. I remember sitting with Rachel, she's contemplating this, and, and I drew a, a stick figure. Later on, I, when I first used this illustration, I had a whiteboard up here and I drew this figure, and then a kindergarten teacher told me that that wasn't acceptable, and it happened to be Mark's wife, Ann. And, uh, thankful for the Thompsons, and uh, she said, no, you, it would be better if you did this, right? Um, and so I drew this figure on this whiteboard, a, a person, and then I, I drew a two on it, like a jersey. And I said, Rachel, there are two yous that live in you. How about you? How many of you have a story where you, you feel like there's this new you, but then you've had some talks with the old you, haven't you? You shut your mouth, right? Cut it out. Stop doing that again, right? Paul, say, Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. And see, you're going to be hyper aware of this new life that's being created right in the midst of what already is. And you can't see it, but like the wind, you can see the effects of it. And you can begin to look at where it's going and what it's doing. And like the wind, you can begin to examine the evidence of life. Do you continue, Rachel, over the years when you stumbled into the dark, did you correct it? Rachel, when... You didn't stay there long. The fact that you're even asking the question, what's right and what's wrong, is even evidence that the wind of the Spirit has blown on your life and there's something new that you're aware of in the midst of what is already there. And then John says this in 1 John, he says, well, what will we be like? He says, I don't know yet what we'll be like, but I know when I see Jesus face to face, then we will be like him. See, there's a new life that God has for you, and it's right in the middle of this one. But you'll be conflicted, 
And if you're someone who's met Jesus, you're aware of that new life, and you're also aware of the old life. The question is, are you feeding one and starving the other? Are you listening to one and ignoring the other? Are you telling that one to, you're in your place. I'm going to fight because what is born of the flesh is flesh, but I'm going to be born of the Spirit just as water is turned into wine. Allow the wine of the Spirit. That's why Jesus, or Paul says this, don't be drunk with wine as so many are, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow that to be your new life. But how can Jesus offer us this? Maybe that's a, maybe you've heard that. And maybe you realize that's access to something new, something great. Jesus says, I am the door and no man comes to the Father except through me. See, we want to quote some Jesus passages because it says he loves me and he gives me gifts. But when I say he's the only way, he's the only door, maybe you think that's judgment. See, I'm not giving you judgment from a bad perspective or a negative perspective or from God's perspective, Jesus is giving you the bad news of reality is no one else made a way. When the Bible says that there's no way to the Father except through Him, what it should announce to you is there is a way when there was no way. That's why He says this, if you walk your road, you go your way, instead of believing changing the way you think and going his way, you're condemned already. Why? Because this road leads to nothing and nowhere. Oh, that you would choose life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But how did he give us access? Oftentimes when you go to a door and you want to go into a party, there's a cover charge. There's a price of admission. See, the reality is, is this, this gift that God gives was not free, but it's been paid for. See, that's why he says this. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus compares himself to this ancient story where Moses took a dead snake and put it on a pole. Maybe you've seen that on some insurance companies. And you'd ask the question, why would God compare himself to that? A snake on a pole. Maybe when you think about the cross or you think about Jesus, now you think maybe it should be something beautiful. See, here's why. Because our sin was placed on Jesus. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. So when God looked at the cross, he saw a snake. Because sin was put to death on that cross. Why? So you could live. Why did Christ have to die? So that old you could be put to death. So the old Sam Kaiser could die. Somebody say amen to that. Not, hey, what? Not too. So that he could give you access. Why? The old you could not go through the door. But this new life 
has access to something beyond your imagination, beyond what you can comprehend. This is life that death can't stop, and it's life that puts you into a world that is beyond what you could ever possibly imagine. How many of you remember the Chronicles of Narnia? Just to keep it Thompson consistent this morning. Yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote these kids' book in the ni- 1940s called The Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've seen the movie or if you've read the books yourself. And he was a, a Christian philosopher who actually was an atheist turned believer by these stories that had symmetry through them throughout the ages, that they were all pointing to one thing. And so he wrote these, these books, The Chronicles of Narnia. My, my first grader just just finished uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it was, he's talking to me about it, and I, I've never even read it. And uh, right? it's like, come on, Dad. So we're talking about this book, and maybe if you're not, you're not aware of it, there's the idea is that in this, this house, there's this wardrobe. And in, in, the, in this one room, there's this wardrobe that when they open the door and they step into the wardrobe, it leads to this land called Narnia. And it's beautiful and it's, it's full of imagination. And, and, he, and C.S. Lewis writes this to help communicate the gospel. A fairy tale land. A land beyond your imagination. As you got older, did your imagination get bigger or smaller? See, the reality is this, friend. If you knew that in your house there was a wardrobe that led to another world, it would not matter how big your house was. Let me try that again. Uh, If you you had a wardrobe in your house that led to another world, it would not matter how big your house was. I like you. It would not matter, right? If you knew there was a door to life everlasting, if there was a place, it would not matter if you lived in a shack or you lived in a big house or you had a nice car or you lived in a house of luxury, you had all the comforts. It would not matter what you had if you had access to a new Life. Someone say amen to that. That's the only way Jesus could say something like, don't think about what you should eat or where. Don't store for yourself up treasures on this earth where moth and rust decay it, where the last thing you bought on Amazon was in a garage sale the next week, right? Don't care about what's here when you have access to what is there. That's the only way Hebrews could say that they loved not their lives even unto death. That they gave their lives. Why? Because what happened on this side? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. When there is a doorway leading from life to life, that's the only way that you could believe such things. See, if you believe that Jesus gives life, that death can't stop. How would you live on this side of the wardrobe? How would you live if you believed that what matters is what's beyond the dates of when I was born 
and when I face this door. I was talking with uh, a group of ladies this week who had, were mourning the, the death of their loved ones and six ladies around the table and I thought I talked a lot. Got a few words in and I went over to encourage them but they really encouraged me. But there was this one particular thing that they said that started making me think of how our imaginations have gotten so small. And then I preached this in first service and a young man who's been in our church maybe for four years or so, he came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder in the courtyard and he said, Pastor Sam, thank you for that sermon today. My dad passed away on Friday. And to hear him say this, I started thinking about when we talk about heaven, we talk as if this place where Jesus is is really small, right? We say they're probably just all up there together, right? They're just together and they're huddled around. Like think about when you think about heaven and, and those who have went before you, they're all close, tight-knit together. We think up there is really small and down here is really big. But see, it's the opposite. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man what God has prepared for us. See, there is really big, and here is really small, and it's a moment, a fleeting moment, and we move from life to life, friends. Because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. If he was talking to a bunch of sci-fi nerds, he'd say there are many dimensions. There's spaces and places that no sci-fi movie, no fairy tale book, nothing that we've even seen or begun to imagine can possibly compare to the greatness of what God has in store for us. There is really big. And the only way there is to experience new life right here, something new created out of what already is. Life that death can't stop. That young man said to me, and I couldn't believe it, his dad died on Friday. And his faith has grown so much and only people who believe this kind of stuff can say something like, it makes me envious of him because now he's with Jesus. Because here's the reality, we're all dying and they're living. Will you pray with me? With every head bowed, with every eye closed, I wanna give you an opportunity. Maybe you're in, in here today and you say, Pastor Sam, I want life that death can't stop. Well, friend, that comes through faith in the finished work of Christ, that he paid for your sin he put to death, death, so that he could give you life. And if you believe that, I want to help you put that into words. And my prayer is that your faith will cause belief that drives your behavior going forward. That leads you like the wind of the Spirit begins to blow on you and give you life. See, I've helped many people pray this prayer and some people, for them, it's words, and for others, it's life. 
This prayer isn't magical, but it can be powerful if you put your faith in it. And I've seen people experience new life right here in the middle of this one because they've made a decision to trust in the finished work of Christ. You say, I can't see it, but it's the wind of the Spirit that gives new life. If you're in here today, I'm not going to call you the front. I'm not even going to make you raise your hand. But I want to pray for you. So with every head bowed, with every eye closed, here's what I want to do. If maybe you haven't said that prayer in a long time, or maybe this would be the first time, I want to know who I'm praying for. So here's what I want you to do. Right now, I want you to just look up and make eye contact with me if you want to say that prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Church, will you help those? Maybe you're saying this for the very first time. Will you help them say this prayer? Lord Jesus, I'm dead. Make me alive. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Make something new out of what already is. Forgive me of my sin. Tell me what to do. I love you, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for every person who said that prayer. I thank you for the man that I met who was selling me solar panels, who watched online in the 9 a.m. and he texted me and he said, I made eye contact with you, but you couldn't see it through the TV. And I thank you for that man who I'm praying for right now. And I thank you for every person in the room or watching online that your spirit is with them now. And like the wind, we cannot see it, but your spirit burst something new right here in the middle of this. As you turn water into wine, I thank you that you breathe on flesh and you bring a new wine of your spirit, life more abundantly, life that death can't stop. We'll trust you that you've made a way, you've opened the door, and we'll live for eternity because it's bigger than this. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?